Romans chapter 10. I'll pray to kind of get us going, and then we'll kick it off. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Pray with me. Not out loud, though. That's awkward. So, <clears throat> God, just want to come before you as we um, get ready to study your word. Just as Chris said, would this just be an extension of our worship? Um, I just think of, I'm mindful of, of what a disservice we've done to the concept of worship that we think it ends with the last note of the song. Um, that this is an act of worship, that this is about lifting you up. Um, this is about emptying ourselves so that you may pour more of you into us. And so um, your word consistently, <clears throat> if read improperly, makes us uncomfortable. And that's a good thing. And so we just pray that this time would be a sweet aroma to you as we uh, seek to lift you up and glorify your name in spite of ourselves. And so Jesus, be glorified. We love you. We praise you. Cannot wait to see you again. Amen. <clears throat> so who was here last week? Anyone for chapter 9? That was the hard part. I get the easy part. So last week, and if you weren't here last week, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you do go onto the website and hear Zach, Zach's exhortation of, of Romans 9, which is arguably one of the tougher chapters to teach through um, in the entirety of the Bible. He handled it phenomenally. Um, and so recommend that you do that. But, but as I think he mentioned, we have to remember that the Bible was, was not written with chapters. It was written as entire letters um, before they took the real one down and put up a fake one. Instead, I saw the original scroll, the book of Isaiah, one of the original autographs. I saw it in Israel. Um, and it's just amazing to see that this thing just reads. There's no chapters. There's no headlines. There's no subtitles. There's no footnotes. It just <clears throat> reads. And so one of the things that Paul is doing in this chapter is that he's continuing. You saw that, that last week there was a lot of heavy lifting that Zach did in terms of Paul preaching to the Jews and, and kind of shaking the tree. And, and he's got this huge heart for them, and you'll see it again. And so without going into much of what Zach talked about last week, which is about God's sovereign choice and that, that through the lineage he chose Isaac and not Ishmael. He chose Jacob and not Esau, right? through all of this and, and dissecting this idea that, that God chooses because God chooses. And Zach said, people say, why did he choose this one and not this one? And the real question is, why did God choose anyone? That's the perspective that we should have. It's one of the toughest questions to grapple with as, as Christians, I know. Why does God choose you and, and not someone else who's a non-Christian? I said, I don't even know why he chose me. Right? I don't know why he plucked me out. As one of my favorite bands, metal bands, Christian metal bands says, is that he carried me back from hell with his nail scarred hands. I don't know why. I was hell bent. We're all hell bent. And Jesus comes down into those who would believe he yanks them from the grips of hell. And so Paul's got this heart and he's aching and you're going to see this ache continue after he's done this massive exhortation about God's sovereignty and his choice. <clears throat> and then he goes into chapter 10. We'll do about half of it. But what he's doing now is he's, he's sort of, to a certain extent, summarizing a lot of what we talked about in the last chapter. But he wants to get back down to the fundamental question of who is righteous and who is not. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If you haven't heard me say it, there's two buckets that encompass all of humanity. It's not good people and bad people. It's not Democrats and Republicans, thank goodness, because I'm neither. Right? It's not churchgoers and non-churchgoers. 
It's not even Christians and atheists. It's Jesus and everyone else. Jesus and sinners, if you will. The two buckets that encompass all of human history, for all of human history, past, present, and future, the two buckets of humans will be Jesus and sinners. That's why if you're not found in Jesus, you will be found as a sinner before a holy God. And God cannot have sin with him. And so if you're not found in the former, you will be found in the latter. And that's why the Bible, by the way, I love that the New Testament uses the term Christian like two or three times, depending on translation. Do you know that? And we, Christian, I'm Christian, Christian. Who's a Christian? You're a Christian, Christian school, Christian article, Christian website. Is that the sort of the Christian band? Christian, 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 Christian. The New Testament describes us as how? In Christ. In Christ. In that bucket. In Christ, it bears his name, not ours. The name we get is sinner. If we're not in him. And so Paul is going to go into kind of another variation of this distinction, but we're going to be talking about this concept of righteousness. Righteousness, being found right, being found moral, being found upstanding. But if you're to be found something, you have to talk about who you're being found it by. We're talking about a holy and perfect God. You need to know that that is God's standard, perfection. How'd you do with that today? Anyone else? How'd you wake up? I woke up with my stiff back. You better believe I was just sinning right out of bed. Like you, right? Sinning right out the gate. Thought, word, and deed. If we put a video up of all your thoughts, of everything you thought in your head today, you down for that flick? Right? Who's down for that? How'd you do with perfection today, let alone your whole life? How often, let's say the best dude on the planet sins seven times. He's seven times separated from God. Seven times. One sin sets you apart. One sin in the presence of a holy God makes him no longer perfect and holy. Because that presence that he all encompasses, it says in him there can be no darkness. So when you talk about being found, you're talking about this, this judging. You need to know that the judge who sits there making that declaration is Perfect. That's his standard. The Bible says, be perfect as my father is perfect. How are you doing with that? If you're a Bible nerd, you're like, I'm actually doing okay. Why? Because it's not about me. And that's what Paul's going to get to here. And so we're talking about this concept of righteousness. That when you come before a perfect God, a perfect God, what foundation do you stand on? What is your case? Because the Bible in Revelation says that we have an accuser of the brethren. That's a legal term, an accuser. But it also says that we have an advocate. And that's a legal term too. And so we're going to get into this concept of righteousness. You'll see that, that Paul is, is pouring out his heart because he's preaching to Jews of which he was varsity. When it came to being Jewish, right? Paul was varsity. All American. All the titles. All the records. It says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was not just a cultural Jew, he was a religious Jew. He was a Pharisee. He has the audacity. It's my favorite new word. <laughs> I figured that out this week. I keep using it in the, at my company. They're like, why do you keep talking about audacity? Like, I don't know. Paul had the audacity to say before the law, 
He said before the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of archaic, seemingly barbaric laws. Before that law, what did he say he was? Blameless. Blameless. We can't even keep traffic law, right? Some of you did over 65 on the way here today, didn't you? Right? Paul only went 64 on the freeway. That's what it meant to be a Pharisee back then. It's hyperbole. They didn't have cars. Well, never mind. Okay. He was epic. Never jaywalked. In fact, the Pharisees were in charge of coming up with rules so that people wouldn't even come close to breaking the rules. They're like, here's the line. He's like, tell you what, then we'll just draw a new line here so you don't get close to that one. And so when they said you couldn't do work on Saturday, they would literally say, this is work. If you carry something across a house, this is work. But if you do this, it's not carrying. And you take a look at old Jewish manuscripts. They, they, they said, look, if that's the line, then we need to come back here. Paul was in charge of that. And blameless. He was epic at keeping the law. Epic at keeping the law. And his heart's pouring out to the Jewish people. So I'm one of you from the tribe of Benjamin, he says, which was a royal, gave Israel its first king, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, blameless. And then he met Jesus. And you know the story. It was Saul and then he became Paul, right? Saul never met Jesus in his physical ministry, but Jesus showed up from heaven and smacked him around. Caused him to go blind. Set him on course. Paul was the most zealous of all the Jews. The most zealous. He oversaw the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. That's the one we have recorded. Very likely, that was a very common occurrence for him. He would give his blessing. He would come down from his room as a Pharisee and go onto the streets and said, I'll be here for this. Stone him. They all knew him. He was the most zealous. But he didn't know Jesus. And when he met Jesus, everything changed. When you meet Jesus, everything changes. When he shows up and smacks you out of simply following rules, everything changes. Because we look at the Jews like, you didn't get it. And then here we are, dragging ourselves in here. And some of you came here because you think just the art of coming here, the fact that you came here is part of what keeps you righteous. Well, if I'm going to stand before God, I better say I had a pretty good Sunday service record. Look, I was there. I went to Sunday school and then I went to college and stopped going for a little while, but then I started going back. I, did, I didn't kill anyone. I didn't murder anyone. And even this, some of you come here thinking that this is part of what you do to become or to keep or add to your righteousness. It's good that you're here. I've taught on that. Don't get me wrong. But never, never connect it with how God views you as righteous or not. That cannot be about us. So Paul gets ready to implore the Jews. Implore the Jews. And so he kicks off, Esther, he comes through this massive section that we studied last week. And chapter 10 says, brethren, or my brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Is that your heart for non-believers? Or let's be honest, are there a couple you're like, good, don't believe? Are there a couple? The gospel's a scandal, by the way. It's the most scandalous thing ever that God would say, if Hitler but believe in Jesus, he gets in. 
No, not him. I'm not saying whether he is or not. But that it was open to him just as much as it was open to Mother Teresa is an absolute scandal. Why? Because we're in the same bucket. I am not in the same bucket as Hitler. Yes, you are. Until you become in Christ. Until it is not just a title you hold, but something that you are in. But I love that Paul doesn't just care for non-believers, the Jewish of his time as he's writing this letter, or today. He doesn't just care for them. Man, I really wish. What did he do? He went into prayer for them. Do you find yourself when confronted with the unbelievers? And I got to tell you, it's, it's weird because the last couple weeks, I've got someone at work, I won't go into details, and he would describe himself as kind of a cultural Jew. He's like, yeah, I'm Jewish, you know, star, I don't go to temple, I don't do all the religious ceremony. We've got a lot of Jewish folks at our company in Calabasas, right? Some of them have the guy come in and wrap their arm and do all this. And some people are like, eh, I'm good. Why? Because I'm part of God's people. We saw last week, there's no such thing, right? Why Isaac and not Ishmael? Because of faith. Wasn't Ishmael born Jewish? Wasn't he? Was he chosen? No. Why Jacob, not Esau? Wasn't Esau Jewish? Jacob, not Esau. But in the last couple weeks, it's been interesting. As he's learned that I'm a pastor, he's gotten a little, and we have a great working relationship. We go on road trips, right? He sales, I'm marketing. We do a lot of stuff. We've got a great working relationship. But I've noticed that he started kind of like throw out some jabs recently. Like I talk about the rule of thirds a lot as a marketer because there's a Wikipedia page, which that makes it true. Okay, right? The source of all things good and true is Wikipedia. Anyone can edit, so you know it's the best information, right? And so, no, but I talk about the rule of thirds. How many photographers in here? Anyone? None. No creatives. Cool. All right. The best, photo- the best photographs, the best photographs are generally in thirds. You take, you take a picture of a sunset, it's a third the sky, a third the water because we're on the beach, and a third the ground, right? Have you ever noticed in public speaking that if someone emphasizes something at the end, it's most powerful if they emphasize the last three words? Doesn't that feel complete? Instead of if I was just to do the last two words, you're like, there should have been one more. Certainly not if I use the last four words. Like, seriously, are you still going with the whole emphasis thing? Right? Rule of thirds, things are inherently funnier, more effective. Good public speakers know that you make three big points and you repeat them three times. Because science has shown that the brain in any given hour setting can't retain really more than three big ideas. Rule of thirds, rule of thirds, rule of thirds. And we're in there, I'm talking about, I said, look, we lay this out, we go rule of thirds. He's like, you would, pastor, and the whole Trinity thing. I was like, someone's <laughs> oddly offended. I have no clue how, why, right? But you know that, that not because I'm pious or like better or anything like that, but because I'm at a place in my faith where like when he does that and I go on my lunch on my motorcycle, I'm like, God, are you, are you poking this guy? Man, what, how radical would it be at that some point in my career I see him come to Jesus, not through me, but by you saving him? I'll testify any way I can if that, that door opens. But, right? but now, my, now my heart's like into prayer for him. Like how amazing would it be if Jesus came and knocked him around a little bit? Like he knocked me around a little bit, right? Like, does your care for non-believers? Because everyone's like, no, I care about it all the time. Try to bring them to church. Do you pray for them? Oh, well, that's, that's just sort of weird and takes time. It doesn't take much. The Bible actually says, let your words to God be few. I love that verse because it means I don't have to sit there for three hours praying in the morning before the sun comes up. 
think it's First Thessalonians says, pray without ceasing. It's far more the mentality, just a constant conversation with God. It's not these long, arduous, thought-out prayers. You're all suddenly talking like you're in the King James Version. Thou hast must before they... How did Jesus pray? He prayed to God as what? As a father. Talk to God like you talk to your dad. Talk to God like you would if you had a great dad, an amazing dad, a good dad. You do. Maybe not on earth for some of you, but certainly in heaven. Jesus prayed to him and said, Father, Dad, does your heart leap? Does, it, does your care turn into prayer for non-believers in your life? I'd submit to you that it should, for Paul it certainly did. He didn't just care about the Jews. He didn't just preach at the Jews. He didn't just try to evangelize to the Jews. He went upstairs and he closed his door. The Bible says what you pray in secret will be honored by God in secret. And he prays for people. Do you pray for non-believers? Do you have unbelieving family members? That you, 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 you're, you're just gripped that they don't know Jesus? Do you pray for them? Your friends, your professors, your enemies. Are you at a point where you want them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus? Paul was to that point for the Jews. He wanted them to believe. He says, my prayer, my care and my prayer is poured into you being saved. Verse two, he says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. He knows this. They have a zeal for God, but, but not according to knowledge. Not according to knowledge. Look, zeal is great, but are you excited about things that are actually true? Right? I can't tell you how many folks, look, and, I, and I'm on campus quite a bit at CLU. I deal with college students, but even with adults, just like, on fire for God, tell me three things about his character. People have no clue. How are you saved? Oh God, I think you just, they've done surveys. Like the vast majority of Christians still believe in some way that they hold whether or not they're deemed righteous or not. Well, it has kind of stuff, to, it has to do with stuff I do. Right? Like, I mean, clear, I got saved, but then, like, I can't, I can't murder anyone now. Like, if I do, then I'm unrighteous, and I can't do this, and then I'm unrighteous if I do that. Do you have a knowledge of how it actually works? Because what Paul's going to do is he's going to go to a very, very basic breakdown. Having a zeal and being excited and wanting to be spiritual and do yoga and stuff, that's great. I'm, I'm spiritual. I love God. I do this, that, yeah. But do you have a knowledge? Now, knowledge won't save, and he'll press beyond this. But sound doctrine. People are like, oh, doctrine, no. No. Do you know what doctor comes from? It comes from the word that means doctor in French. See, doctrine is meant to heal. The right understanding of the right characteristics and attributions of God heals you. This divide between what makes people righteous and unrighteous should be a healing moment, not a divisive moment. So Paul says, look, they're all super excited about God, but they're not doing it under what has been clearly revealed. This God that has clearly revealed himself in the person and the work of Jesus. And so just being all about Jesus and saying his name as many times as possible is zealous and that's great and that's good, but is it under a proper knowledge? Though knowledge won't save, but are you diligently studying the work and the ministry of Jesus apart from the rest of the Bible. Paul wants to press. He says, look, they're super zealous. That's great. He said, but it's, it's not without proper knowledge. 
Verse 3, for they being ignorant. So in what ways do they not understand something? In what ways are they just zealous, but they don't have a proper understanding of something? He goes into it. He's a smart man. He says, for they being ignorant of what? God's righteousness. He says, they don't understand God's righteousness. You would think that the Jews of all people, having that legalistic system, would understand exactly what God demanded of them. He gave them a list. Right? Like the Old Testament is just like hundreds, like don't and do these things. Here's what you don't do. Here's what you do to just command, 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 command. If anyone should know how God views righteousness, at that time it should have been the Jews, but Paul says something has radically changed. Your view of God's righteousness has been reduced to this set of rules, to this set of laws. And look where he goes with this. He says, they're being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. And we're like silly Jews, but we do the same thing. I do the same thing. I get amped up about certain topics and I think that's what's going to make me a better Christian. Better in Christian don't go in the same sentence. There is Jesus and sinners. And so he says, look, you you don't understand God's righteousness. And so what you're doing is trying to make it about your righteousness. How many of us at some point said, but I'm not as bad as them. You hear some fiery sermon about this, that, and the other. You're like, yeah. And you're thinking of three people that should do that. Right? Or three people that should stop doing that. Those people, idiots. Can't believe they would. Oh, she needs to hear this sermon. I wish he was here today. I invited him. He didn't come. Pfft. Right? How many, how many times do we hear God's declarations and we immediately think about people, not us? And we start to build up our own righteousness. I'm not doing this. Or I am doing that. Jesus and sinners. The ground before the foot of the cross is level. And so he says, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. How high, how holy, how set apart, how perfect, how powerful, how loving, how gracious, how merciful. We're ignorant of that true depth. It says, and so in order to fill that, we start to fill it with our own righteousness. We make it about us, the Jews, and us. The exhortation is timeless. And it says this, says they have not submitted, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. He established back in chapter three, he established this, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. What was the purpose of the Old Testament law? To save you? Keep this and you will be saved? No, it was to show you that you couldn't keep this and you needed to be saved. That's why it says in James that the the law is like a schoolmaster pointing you to the fact that you need salvation, not that you can obtain it on your own. The law points forward to your need for a savior. The law itself does no saving. Keeping the law does no saving. It points forward to the fact that we are in need, in desperate need 
of saving. And even as Christians, we start to get deep into our faith. We start to walk this path of of righteousness and sanctification. We get closer to Jesus. But at times, we start to build ourselves back up again. We start to build ourselves, we start to build up our righteousness again. Paul says, don't allow for it. Ignorant of God's, building up our own. We have not submitted to the righteousness of God. See, information about the gospel is not enough. And I preach the gospel and I love the gospel. I want you to understand the gospel, but you need to know that understanding the gospel will not save you. I could explain it to an atheist in an hour and have him regurgitate it. I get how you guys think it works. Get it. His righteousness, your account, on the cross, got it. But it's until we put away our righteousness or lack thereof, that's when we become submitted to God's righteousness. It doesn't mean that we just go out and now we're just, we're, we're terrorists, we can do whatever the heck we want now. Paul writes, should I, should I continue in sin so that grace may abound, right? Like if God's grace covers it, sin, then why not just sin more so there's more grace? He says, by no means. By no means. There's sanctification after that, but what we're talking about is righteousness. We're talking about one line. This side of it or that side of it. That's it, black and white. This side of it or that side of it? Sanctification, justification, look, I get all that. Regenerating grace, how God works in and through his people. We'll never be sinless, but we will sin less. I get all that. I'll preach it till I'm blue in the face. I'm talking about declared righteous. Declared righteous. It happens one time for all time. You need to know that. Some of you have been declared righteous and then you come here feeling dirty like you're unrighteous. You need to get righteous again, right? Now I'm preaching to the Christians. I was saved in junior high, but then I started doing some unrighteous thing. The Bible says there's no possible way. You're righteous once forever. You will continue to sin. It doesn't change your status as righteous. Because if you can lose your righteousness or obtain it on your own works, you can lose it by your lack of works. One time, one declaration, judge says for all time, righteous or unrighteous, there's a lot of stuff to be done after you cross that line. There's a lot of sanctification and regeneration, as I said. There's a lot of falling down and getting back up and Jesus picking you up and restoring you and pushing you forward. Paul was murdering Christians and God showed up. Jesus showed up and he didn't talk about his past. He said, move forward. Paul wasn't sinless, but he was declared righteous. Therefore, his life looked radically different. Even when he stumbled, looked radically different. Why? Because God said, you are now righteous. Some of you think you ebb and flow between righteous and unrighteousness. That is the wrong concept. Declared righteous by Jesus, what he declares never changes. You need to know that is your constant state. This is a, this is a paradigm shift. I deal with a lot of guys that deal with pornography. And I don't try these weird tricks like Jesus is watching. It's like he's some creepy boogie monster or something. I don't try that. I say, you need to know, even in the midst of your sin, when you're clicking on that website, Jesus still sees you as righteous. You may be sinning, but Jesus still sees you as righteous. Though you're stumbling and backsliding, Jesus still declares you're righteous. We don't do things to be righteous. 
We work because we've been declared righteous. That's this massive divide. That's why we don't understand God's righteousness. Because once it's put on our account, we can't lose it because we weren't in charge of obtaining it. There's nothing you can do to be declared unrighteous if you're in Christ for the rest of your life. As your pastor, I'll walk through the stumbling blocks with you. As a shepherd, I'll run after you when you're fleeing. But my efforts, your efforts, will never be the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. You need to know that. This is declared one time forever. Righteous. One time forever. Christians, do you believe that? Or have you thought, sometimes as a Christian I'm righteous, sometimes I'm doing unrighteous things. Sometimes you're sinning, but it doesn't change your status before God. Again, if you obtain it by what you can do, you can lose it by what you can do or don't do. This is the big bucket that Paul has to draw. He says, look, it's not about your laws. It's not about your church service attendance. It's not about your background. It's not about your race, your ethnicity. It's not about your gender, your sex, your knowledge, your understanding of the gospel, your Bible studies. It's not about what your parents did. It's not about any of that. It's who Jesus says you are. And if you're in him, righteous forever. I want you to believe that. Even in the midst of your sin, when you're playing in the muck, the Bible says you'll go back to your sin like a vomit, like, vom- like a dog returns to his vomit. And I do the same thing. In that moment, I want you to think, oh, I'm a wretched sinner. I want you to fascinate on the fact that Jesus still sees you as righteous. Don't focus on the sin. Focus on your Savior. In that moment. I just preached at CLU in, a, in an event about relationships. Same thing. I said, look, this is not about behavior modification. It's not about self-led behavior modification. It's about spirit-led heart regeneration. And when you focus on him in the midst of your sin, it pulls your eyes off your sin and puts them up toward him. So I don't want you focused on your sin as you're sinning. I want you focused on him. That will pull you back from it. I'm telling you it will. And he says, this doesn't change how Jesus sees me. That changes your behavior. I see it in my kids already. When I constantly pour out, this does not change how, how daddy sees you. It's not like, oh, it's a free-for-all then. It strikes at their heart. And so we're submitted to God's righteousness. We're under God's righteousness. We're protected by God's righteousness. We live and breathe under God's righteousness. It's not ours. And that status does not change. If you remember one thing from tonight, you remember one thing. Say, your status as righteous does not change. Though we stumble, and we will tomorrow morning, because no one likes Monday mornings. You, those of you who are in Christ, declared righteous forever. We got that? All right, I'm done. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so check us out. And he says this. So we're ignorant of God's righteousness. We try to establish our own and we have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And I pray even those who are in Christ tonight have a radical new view of what it means to be submitted to his righteousness, not our own. It says this, verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I love talking about the law. Why? Because it was always a precursor to Jesus. 
It was always, as I already said, the entirety of the law was meant to point to Jesus. I've done a whole series on it. Took a look at the civil law in the Old Testament, the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, the moral law in the Old Testament, and how all three of those things point forward to Jesus coming. I'll give you the super short version. The civil law, which dictated how the nation would interact with each other on a civil level, pointed to the fact that the king was coming. The ceremonial law, which told them how to do church, how to slaughter animals, how to shed blood, pointed to the fact that their savior was coming and he would be axed on a cross. And then the moral law. You ever wonder why we follow the the, the Ten Commandments still, but not like Leviticus? It's really... uh, how many of you have been told you, you pick and choose from the Old Testament? Right? Oh, cool. That, apparently that's never leveled at anyone anymore. I think I weeded that out single-handedly. Right? We don't follow the civil law. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled it. The king is here. We don't need civil law now that points to the fact that Jesus is coming. He came. Ceremonial law. Anyone have a thing against goats? I'm glad I'm not in the Old Testament. I don't want to slaughter goats at church. Said so the blood flowed from the temple endlessly. Constantly. Got nothing against goats. But all of that ceremonial law pointed to the one true sacrifice. Jesus is here. We don't need the ceremonial law anymore. He fulfilled it. It was pointing to him. The moral law is the tricky one. Like the Ten Commandments. This is where God tells people who he is, his nature and his character. And then when Jesus came, Jesus showed it to you. Right? Jesus showed you that God is perfect. The the God of the Old Testament says, I am holy, I am perfect, I am blameless. Jesus came and he was holy and he was perfect and he was blameless. But that doesn't mean that it stops. It doesn't mean that God is no longer holy or perfect or blameless. Does that make sense? So the civil law points forward to the king. We don't need it anymore. The ceremonial law puts forward to the sacrifice. We don't need it anymore. The moral law says who God is. Jesus came, showed us that that's true, and it continues. Why? Because God is unchanging. Do we pick and choose? You better believe it. I pick and choose from the Old Testament. Which law are we talking about? Why don't you slaughter goats? Because Jesus came and he was slaughtered. Why don't you put homosexuals to death? Because our king came and he established grace. We don't stone homosexuals. Nope. Nor should we. But it did in the Old Testament. I know. I know. Jesus fulfilled it. The whole law points forward. Don't be afraid of the Old Testament. Don't be afraid of the Old Testament. There's movement in Christianity. Some people don't even study the rest of the New Testament. They stick to the red words of Jesus. It's crazy. They want to avoid the uncomfortable stuff. It's not uncomfortable when you understand it. You see, the Bible is one story told in 66 chapters. And that's what he says. He says, for Christ is the end of the law. So keeping civil and ceremonial law isn't what makes you righteous. Why? Because Jesus came and he says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it. If something is fulfilled, it meant that everything before it was coming to it or him. He says, I fulfilled the law. It was unfulfilled. It was pointing toward me. I'm the end of the road. And so now Jesus is the end of the law. Now we're no longer under law, but grace. But the laws in the Old Testament that reflect God's character, those still exist. Ten, yeah, Ten Commandments, you better believe it. That's God saying, this is who I am. So Christ is now the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is from the law. And then Paul's just going to say, look, and he's, he's preaching to the Jews. He said, look, it's very, very simple how the law works. He says, very, very simple how the law works. 
For Moses writes about righteousness, which is of the law. So if you believe that it's what you do or what you don't do that makes you righteous, he says, okay, quote, the man who does those things shall live by them. So if you believe you'll be saved by the law, all you have to do is keep it perfectly. Good luck. It's all you have to do. If God is perfect and he requires perfection and you want to say, To heck with Jesus, all you have to do, it's very simple, is be perfect. Don't break a single law. Old Testament, New Testament, we're to be under the authorities, right? So you can't even go 66 on a freeway. Because we're called to be under the authority. Any law that doesn't violate the law of God, we're subject to as Christians. So if you've ever done 66 on the 101 freeway, you're out. I'm on a motorcycle going by you doing 85. Suckers, I love Jesus, right? Good luck at 64. We shouldn't speed. We'll edit that out. Okay. It says it's very simple. If you want righteousness from the law, you simply have to follow the law and you have to do it perfectly. Good luck with that. Those are my words. Paul didn't say that, but he probably did. But, verse 6, the righteousness of faith. And that's what Zach talked about last week, right? Why Isaac, not Ishmael? Faith. Why Jacob, not Esau? Faith. So it's not enough for our Jewish brothers and sisters to believe they're saved. Why? Because they're Jewish. If Ishmael wasn't saved because he was Jewish, it strikes a chord in that whole theory. If Esau wasn't saved because of a lack of faith, then it strikes a whole chord in the theology that simply God's people were born into this. It's always been about faith. So he says, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He says, do not for one second think, do not for one second think that you have to go up to God in some sort of way, or you have to lower yourself to God in some sort of way. Nothing that you do along the way is what makes you righteous. Some of you have believed that for for all time when you sin, you need to turn around and get back to God. It's the anti-gospel. You run and you flee? It says he's a shepherd. You run and you flee from God? You chase your sin? You get to that pool of vomit? And you turn around? Jesus is right there. Chasing you. You don't get back to God. You read the whole book of Hosea, Old Testament prophet told by God to marry a prostitute openly. Everyone knew what she did. And God in this prefiguration of Jesus told Hosea to love her and to cherish her and to pursue her through everything. And she ran. And what did Hosea do? He chased after her. He didn't say, when you're done with this nonsense woman, you come back to this house and we talk. What did he do? No, he ran after her. In fact, and sometimes he went ahead of her and put up traps to try to stop her. Jesus is pursuing you. You get to your sin, you turn around. The anti-gospel says, go get back to God. The gospel says, don't try to get up to heaven. Don't try to run down to hell. You do absolutely nothing. You turn around, Jesus is right there. You know what he says? He says, you're still righteous. It hasn't changed. You're running, it hasn't changed. 
So he says, this is the righteousness of faith. He says, I don't have to go up. I don't have to go down. There's nothing I can do that will obtain that. It's simply declared by God that this is who I am, though I run. This is who I am. Verse 8 says, but what does it say? The word is near to you. It's the gospel. It's what I hope you've been loving about this sermon. Some of you are Christians. You're like, I've heard this before. Do we have anything new? If you've heard this before and think, is there anything new? You haven't truly believed this. How many of you girls still watch The Notebook? How many, I heard a hilarious comedian like talking about guys and girls and like how guys don't want to watch like chick flicks and stuff. And they like bag on guys that do. I saw an open for the first time uh, in combat in Iraq, by the way. So um, if y'all weren't there next to me, guys, you can't say anything. And so check this out. Right? This comment, not in my notes, definitely going here though, because I just saw this clip yesterday. Talk about how guys will bag on dudes, watch this. Like, bro, that story would never happen. And he's like, oh yeah, because Godzilla was based on true events. Right? Like, you love this stuff. How many of you love the notebook though? Is that too old already? Am I already too old? Like, give me my 30 plus somethings that are like, these kids have no romantic movies anymore, right? How many love that movie? You love that story. Every time you see it, you love it, right? Every time you see it, you love it, right? Every time you hear Ryan Gosling, you love it. You're about to pass out. I'm about to pass out. I man crush on that dude like crazy, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Dude's beautiful. Second only to Ryan Reynolds, okay? So check this out. See, I know my dudes. Um, but how many of you here, what, what's your favorite movie? Give me two more favorite movies. Best movie ever. Forrest Gump. That thing's been out for a while. What other movies? Bloodsport. Nice. Van Damme. 98% of people have no clue what you just said. I love that. Van Damme. Anything. Don't you love that and you love it just as much, if not more, every time you see it? That's how the gospel should be. Every time you hear this, you love it. You're passionate about it. You're like, can we move on? I've heard the whole righteousness bit. Right? Zach has told you, look, I've told you. If you're at a place where you think, I get the gospel, I need to move beyond it, you don't get the gospel. It's beautiful every time. I may fail in presenting it, but when you hear the core, the guts of this, you should be indwelled by the Holy Spirit who translates the Bible, who wrote the Bible, who interprets the Bible. He will endear you to it every single time. It's like the best movie you've ever seen. And you love it. Righteousness is not of myself, but of Jesus. You love that. It's like Ryan Gosling saying that to you. You're like, whatever you say, I believe, right? I know you ladies. I know some of you guys. But what does it say? The word is near to you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth, something like I've heard this before. Can we just move on? You don't want to move past this. You love us every time. It's the best movie you've ever seen. It's the best story you've ever heard. It says this, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Lord Jesus, that Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, the all-encompassing work of the crucifixion and the resurrection, you will be saved. We want to make righteousness, we want to make salvation, we want to make the gospel, we want to make Christianity so complex. So complex. 
We divide entire denominations based off sprinkling of water, washing of water, or submersion. We want to make it so complicated. It's any wonder some people don't want to sit through a church service. So complicated. Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, but I'm afraid that your thoughts will be led astray from the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity. And Zach and I anchored our, uh, our sermon on, on false gospels, on false religions that claim to be Christian. We anchored part of it on that. So we try to overcomplicate everything because we're denying the righteousness of God. We're trying to establish it on our own and we're unwilling to say that all he has done is all that needs to be done. We've tried to make it so complex. If you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. But what if he comes? No. But if she had one, no. But even Hitler, no. If you believe in your heart, and that's the part I can't control. I might be able to hear you do a confession, but it doesn't mean there's a belief. That's why it's between you two. It's between you and God. I can't mediate that. you believe in your heart and you confess with your tongue, Jesus Christ is Lord. You want to move from this bucket to this bucket. Bible says it's actually really simple. You actually believe, you agree in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and you confess with your mouth. You move from sinner to in Christ. Forever. Forever. Because the Holy Spirit indwells in you and he will not lose a fight. He will never lose a fight for your soul. I don't know if you know this, but the Holy Spirit's pretty gangster. You don't know about him, you don't hear about him, he's kind of creepy, he's this weird ghost, I'm telling you. So you grew up like hearing about the Holy Ghost, you're like, where? I don't want anything to do with a ghost. Right? You're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, righteous forever. And you're gonna flee and you're gonna try to quench the Spirit. You move from this bucket to this bucket, it says righteous, for how long? Forever. For how long? Forever. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's critical, because if he's still in the grave, what? Death hasn't been defeated. Death hasn't been defeated. I have a side business, a t-shirt company. I got a big shirt with an upside down skull. It says death defeated. If he's still in the grave, it hasn't been defeated. One of the cornerstones of the Christian faith is the resurrection. The cross too, yeah, but a lot of people say Jesus was crucified. Few say he was raised from the grave. He has raised him from the dead. You will be safe. For the heart, or it says for with the heart, verse 10, one believes unto Righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. When you understand that righteousness is not of you, it's of God, it's all encompassing, you submit to that righteousness, I'm telling you, you'll profess it. And the Bible says that is a salvific cocktail. It says when you mix that heart, understanding the righteousness, it will come out in your mouth, from your mouth, in a confession, which means I agree with what I believe and I say it. It's not a fact. People are like, then mute people can't be saved. Nonsense, right? You believe in your heart. You have an outward expression of that. 
I'm telling you, the outward expression is not what saves you. The, the understanding in your heart simply produces that. We don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. We confess. Why? Because we are saved. We realize that. It says that's the cocktail. That's the salvific cocktail. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Some of you come in here and you feel shamed for what you've done. You feel shame. You feel condemnation. The Holy Spirit's in charge of conviction. Satan is in charge of condemnation. If you're in Christ, you need to know he stands before you. He sees you even as you run and you turn around. He says, there's no shame here. There's none. Why? Because you're righteous. Why? Because I did that for you. By the way, the Bible says that the Father judges no one. Do you know that? How many of you put God up in a black robe behind a bench? The Father. Jesus is like your homie next to you and you go before God the Father. The Bible says that the Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son. You turn around and you say, Jesus, I believe in you. He is your judge. You're acquitted. Why? Because he's put his righteousness. If he finds you guilty, his righteousness is crap. When he puts his righteousness on you and you turn around and you say, here I am, Jesus sees his holy and perfect work and he says, you're perfect as my father is perfect. Righteous for all time. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. If you feel shame, I want you to feel restored tonight. Your sin, if you're in Christ, does not separate you from God. It doesn't mean he's stoked on it, but it doesn't make you unrighteous. He declares you righteous forever in that moment. Will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction. And here's the greatest scandal of all says whoever believes for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek basically God's people at the time and everyone else no distinction that is the biggest scandal ever the Jews would say but we are better than them we followed the law in modern translation but I went to church but I didn't murder anyone. I didn't have sex before marriage. I didn't get divorced, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. And one guy on the other side says, but I believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, you're both in then. That's a scandal. That's the biggest scandal in human history. Seemingly unjust. And God lays out, he says, there's two buckets Two buckets, righteous in Christ and the unrighteous sinners. Those who believe in their heart and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord get moved over. They're saved. And that raises up the righteousness of God. That raises up, I pray it does in your heart, it raises up his righteousness. It doesn't say that's, just, that's unjust. I know, I said it's a scandal. It's not unjust. Why? Because it doesn't have anything to do with us. 
Because everything thought, said, and done in contrary belief and action to what God is about was put on God himself and beat to a bloody pulp. For Hitler's sin, for your sin, for Mother Teresa's sin, though I declare no salvation over anyone, that's not my responsibility. But I know for a fact, Hitler's sin and Mother Teresa's sin were on Jesus in that moment. Doesn't mean that Hitler accepted. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying all sin, past, present, future, for all time, put on Jesus. Jesus became sin, the Bible says. Became it. He didn't look like it. He wasn't a picture or a metaphor for it. He became it so that his righteousness could be put on anyone's account regardless of what they do or don't do because he took it all upon himself. So he gets to declare righteousness and no one gets to take it from you. He says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all. To all, all the time? No, that's universalism. To all who, what? Call upon him. Who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I've said this before. Faith does not save you. Something like, Mark, I'm pretty sure you taught on the five sole at some point. Sola fide means by faith alone. Faith does not save you. The object of your faith is what saves you. If you're drowning in a pool and you put faith in a brick, if you're drowning in a pool and you put faith in a brick, you say, but God, I have faith. You didn't call upon me. I just have faith. Now it's only faith that calls out to Jesus, but it must be the Jesus of the Bible because he's the only one that came into that pool and can grab you. Every other God that the world has concocted sets him apart and never comes to us. We can have nothing to do with any false God on the planet. Only Jesus, when we're drowning and we call out and say, Jesus, save me. He's the only one that came into this pool and said, I have the power to pull you out. It's not merely having faith. It must be faith in an object that can save you. And no false God has ever declared. Have you ever noticed that no fake religion has ever beaten their God to a bloody pulp? Ever notice that? No fake religion got together and said, like L. Ron Hubbard said, if you want to make a lot of money, start a religion. He started Scientology. Don't quote that to them. They melt down in front of you. Okay? No false religion. No religion has said, you know what? Let's get together. Let's create something. You know what we should do is the core theme. We should do absolute, complete humiliation of our God. Let's take our God and strip him naked. First of all, to put him in a human body. That doesn't work. I don't like that. I don't want my God to feel things like I feel things. I need him to be above that. Let's, let's take this fake God and let's strip him naked. Let's have a bunch of people cold cock him in the face. Let's have him pull a beard from his face. 
Some of you have pulled one hair from your nose and you almost pass out. People are like, this is the crucifixion thing. Like, don't make a joke, right? Like, pull the beard from his face. Drag him to a stump. Whip him so deeply that most men died on that stump. We're not talking skin lacerations. We're talking subcutaneous tissue with leather and bones and metal beaten to a pulp on the backside and the bottom of your thighs, which are the largest muscle groups in your body. Yeah, let's do that to him. Then people will believe that, that he's God. Then let's take him and put him on an old cross. It's not like they gave him a new one. Put him on a cross, pin him to it, hoist him up, mock him, spit at him. Have him peeing all over himself and defecating. The crosses were outside the city. They weren't in the middle. They were off on the side near the public bathrooms. You know what? Give him a little vinegar. Give him a little something to drink. You know where that stick with the sponge came from? The bathroom. It's what the servants used to clean the master while he went to the bathroom. I've seen them. They sit on little, this is the old bathhouse model. It was simply a bench with a cutout right here. And they would sit and there was a hole that someone could come and clean. And that was the last thing Jesus tasted on this earth. No one says, let's start a religion and humiliate God. No one. All sin, past, present, future, descended upon him and God crushed him. And God crushed your sin. He says, for those that would call out to him, Jesus is the object of your faith, you will be saved. And so for the non-believers, for the Christians, I, don't, I could care less about what you brought here tonight. I want to declare this thing as your pastor tonight. If you are in Christ, you are righteous forever. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I... I and passionate because I love this story. I love it because I didn't write it. You did. And I believe it. I'm willing to confess it. I pray for those that already know you that they would have a radical transformation in their heart tonight, that they would see themselves as righteous for all time. For those that aren't in you, I pray that, that they would see that there is but one way to be declared righteous before a holy and perfect God. And in their heart right now, they can do that. And you will save them. Jesus, this is not a good opinion. This is not a good story. This is not a good movie. This is good news. And so I pray you translate that, Holy Spirit. You translate into the heart of your people and those who you want to be your people tonight, that you would simply take a sermon and you would make it a truth in someone's heart so that they believe in Christ Jesus, confess with their mouth to the glory of the Father because then they will be saved. Jesus, would you be high and lifted up in our hearts? As we go into a time of musical worship, I pray that this simply continue as we stare to you on a throne currently in heaven, active and alive and listening and loving on your people. We love you and we praise you.